then I look at men like Samson and Jephthah, and the description that the writer of Hebrews gives them is those who, of whom the world is not worthy. And it causes me to remember something that I so easily forget. And it's just the simplicity of the gospel that we come to God by faith in Christ. And when I live in discouragement because of my own failures, it's because I've forgotten to remember something. It's because I've forgotten to remember that my life doesn't come from my success, but life comes from Christ. Welcome to this week's episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Darty, and I'm your host. What are you forgetting to remember? Hebrews 3.13 tells us to encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now in the context of this verse, we find that what we are to be reminding each other of with this encouragement is that we are to be entering into the rest of God that is found in Christ. And chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that this is only known through faith and not by self-determination. Join us as His Hill Bible School Principal John Forrest takes us to Scripture with the intent of encouraging us to, by faith, remember Jesus. Hello again, everybody. It is great to have the opportunity to share now just a little bit from the Word. It's always such a, a gift and an encouragement to my own heart as we get to open God's Word and be reminded of what is true. Uh, and namely, being reminded not just of what is true, but He who is true, uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take some time to look at uh, Joshua and Judges and then jumping over into Hebrews and just some of the things that uh, Scripture says about some of the individuals that show up in these books of Joshua and Judges, uh, mostly in Judges, though. And in the, the Old Testament, you know, with the story of Moses and Joshua and going back to Abraham, you know, it's a story of how God had promised his people, he'd promised Abraham to give him a land and to bless him, to make him a great nation. And then ultimately that through Abraham, there would come a descendant, a seed, who would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, which would be Christ. And so we see this, this story begin to unfold. Uh, in Genesis, we see just some of the offspring of Abraham, his family starting to get a little bigger by the end of Genesis. It takes a while, but eventually, you know, there's 12 sons, uh, the 12 sons of Jacob, and they end up moving to Egypt through the, the events that unfold in Joseph's life as God just uh, providentially orchestrates those things together to give a good place for the descendants of Abraham Joseph and his brothers, to be able to settle down and to prosper. And so they live in Egypt for over 400 years, eventually be becoming slaves uh, because Pharaoh becomes fearful of the Israelites. And at the end of that time, familiar story, we have the Exodus, and Moses comes onto the scene. God raises up Moses again, the story of God's 
providence in preserving Moses's life when the other Israelite baby boys were being killed, uh, that Moses is is saved and is raised in Pharaoh's palace. Uh, and then from that, the story really begins to pick up a lot of speed because you see the end of Genesis uh, that there's uh, that there's these 12 individual sons and there's 70 people total that move to Egypt. But then by the time you get to the very first chapter of Exodus, uh, the population of the Israelites has exploded. So a lot of time has transpired in between. A lot has happened. But scripture doesn't give us any of the details of what's happened in between Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And so that's because God is wanting to slow down time uh, in the sense of focusing on the specific events that are going to clearly point us to his plan of redemption and his working out his salvation for his people. And so that comes to light in the story of Moses. And as he raises up Moses to be the, the person through whom he brings deliverance to the Israelites, deliverance from slavery, uh, he performs the, the plagues on the land of Egypt, and eventually Moses and the Israelites, after the plague of the death of the firstborn son, they're commanded to leave. And Moses and the Israelites pack up their things. It says that they plunder Egypt on their way out, just as God had told them to do, that the Egyptians are giving them uh, their household treasures and goods. And so the Israelites leave wealthy people, having just been freed from slavery. And as they leave, they get to Mount Sinai, they receive the law, all these events happen. And at the end of the story of Moses' life, we find him on uh, the, the Mount, a mountain, overlooking the land of Israel after wandering in their wilderness for 40 years, having led a stubborn and obstinate people. Uh, he's, he's seen the land that God is now going to give, the culmination or the, the, the next big stepping stone in the fulfillment of God's promise to give Israel a land, the promise he had made to Abraham. And so Joshua comes onto the scene and in the book of Joshua, we just see uh, so many positive stories and testimonies of the faith of the Israelites and the faithfulness of God. And scattered throughout are stories of unbelief or disobedience that the Israelites uh, fail in. But for the most part, the book of Joshua is incredibly positive. It's an encouragement to read. You see uh, the Israelites willing to walk around the city of Jericho and in faith, believing that God is going to give them victory over the city. You see them go into battle against armies that number as many as the sands of the seashore, as Scripture describes it. Uh, and yet the Israelites step into those battles in faith, believing that the God who promised them the land is the God who has already given them the land in himself. And now it's just a matter of, as is often stated, it's just a matter of them now possessing their possession. That which has already been given to them, that God says in Joshua chapter 1, uh, 
now they're just going in and enjoying that which has already been provided. And that's just a, a sweet truth is always good to be reminded of as we consider as believers what it is that God has provided for us in Christ and how easy it is for us to neglect uh, the calling of possessing our possession, that in Christ we've been given all that we need for life and godliness, and yet we we grow so discouraged in our own experience uh, because of faults, failures, circumstances we find ourselves in, And the Lord is inviting us to enter into his rest, to again entrust our souls to him, believing that the fruit of the Spirit, as we're abiding in his Spirit, that we we will enjoy the peace of God that is ours in Christ, that we will walk in patience as we're abiding in the Spirit of God, uh, as we're resting in him. And so just a, a good reminder for us, you know, that we would be willing to possess our possession, that which has been entrusted to us in the person of Christ. Nothing that we've, we've earned. Just say we see the Israelites as they enter into the promised land. Uh, they're not well-trained warriors, and yet they keep having victory after victory. And the only explanation is what God himself is doing. And we see near the end of, of Joshua, in chapter 21, in verse 45, there's this, this verse that uh, is summarizing most of the book of Joshua. Uh, part of it is God's giving instructions <clears throat> uh, for them to divide the land among the different tribes after they've taken the land. But in 2145, he says, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And that's talking specifically about the the giving of the land uh, and their having driven out the and over overcome the enemies that are in the land, and just showing God's faithfulness. Not one of his good promises failed. And as we consider the promises of God, uh, and it's it's easy to wonder at times. Why is God taking so long to keep his promises? And uh, Peter writes of this, that the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient. Uh, And we see that he is working in his, what seems to us, his slowness to keep a particular promise. Uh, What seems like slowness to us is actually patience in his mind. And specifically, there he's talking about the promise of judgment. And he says the reason why God is so patient in his promise of bringing judgment on the earth at the consummation of all things is because he desires for none to perish but for all to come to repentance. And so he's patient with his promise of judgment because he's wanting people to come to know him. He's giving them more opportunity. And so... As we as we have that question of why does it seem like sometimes God's God's word isn't being fulfilled in the timing that I think it should be, His promises aren't being realized in the way that I would expect, we get to step back and consider that the ways of God are always good, and the ways in which He fulfills and keeps His promises are always good. 
uh, and it's in this this purpose and intentionality towards the the magnifying of himself of his name and and so we see that uh, that with the Israelites he's faithful to keep his promise not one of his promises fails but he gives them all of the land that he had promised to Abraham way back hundreds of years earlier and you talk about the Lord being patient about his promises and and so we can be quick to grow impatient wanting God to work in our lives in a particular way uh, in a quicker time and the Lord is patient in the fulfillment of his promises and so just we just thank him for that I, I'm so appreciative that the Lord's wisdom is so much greater than my own wisdom and the way that he's going about uh, the keeping of his word is good that we get to trust him in that and often we need this assurance that he gives here in, in the book of Joshua, we need this assurance that God is going to keep his promises, that he does keep his promises. And as, as we're tempted to start to have thoughts of doubt towards the word of God and the things which God has said, we need to come back to these reminders that God doesn't forget. He doesn't forget his promises. He's going to keep those. Uh, and ultimately, those things are realized in the person of Christ, his promise of life. And so we keep coming back to the person of Jesus Christ as we're looking for assurance of his own promises being fulfilled. We look at his promise of redemption that he gave to Abraham, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we see that God took his time to keep that promise, but he always kept it. He had it from the before the foundation of the world, Christ was set apart to be our sacrifice, to, to die in our place. And so it's just this sweet fulfillment uh, of God's promises and his ways. And so we can find great rest and peace in who he is and, and the way that he's uh, working these things out together. And so Joshua is just such a positive book. Very encouraging things that are happening there. Uh, and, you know, you you read about the stories in Joshua in a Sunday school class and growing up in a Christian home. It was just every kid knows the story of Jericho, the stories of victory and success uh, as the Lord is, uh, is staying true to his word. And then we get to the book of Judges, and it's uh, it's quite a different perspective. Uh, just a very different situation, stories that we read about. Still, often these stories are talked about often in Sunday school classes, but it's, it's curious how many of the details I don't remember ever being taught in Sunday school, and that was probably appropriate that not all the details were taught. Uh, but in the book of Judges, there's not nearly as many success stories in the sense of positive things happening uh, in regards to the Israelites' faith, but there's lots of testimony of the Lord's faithfulness despite Israel. Uh, and so we see in Joshua that this contrast between Joshua and Judges of, in Joshua, the Israelites are walking by faith. 
they're remembering the Lord, they're committed to the Lord, they're trusting the Lord, and they have their their mess ups in the midst of that, but the general direction of of their of them as a people is they're trusting God. But then in Judges, it's not that way at all. Uh, they're forgetting the Lord. In Judges, uh, in the very beginning of it, in chapter 2, it says uh, in verse 10, all that generation who were gathered to their fathers, and they were all they all died and they were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And so Joshua's generation, after they get into the promised land and they get settled, his generation dies. And then the very next generation, it says, doesn't know the Lord. They forget the Lord. And among other things, what something that we see very clearly here as a, a caution to us is uh, the, the, the calling of the parent to bring up their child in the way that they should go. And you ask the question, how is it that the Israelites in one generation forgot the Lord? You know, that uh, moving away from the Lord spiritually as a society is not something that just, that has to be a, a long and slow process. But here is the people of God within one generation. It's like Joshua and, and his friends, they're worshiping the Lord and then their kids just aren't. Uh, it, it's it's a quick turnover that happens. It doesn't have to be over the course of one or two hundred years. Slowly things deteriorate, but it's just a matter of is this generation going to remember the Lord or not? Uh, and it's just that simple. There's no guarantee that truth is going to be passed on from one generation to the next. But it is the responsibility of the older generation to do all that they can to pass on that truth to the next generation, namely the truth of who God is, what he has done in Christ. And so every generation has this calling. And this isn't a new calling. This was even true back for the Israelites, that Joshua and his generation had the calling to proclaim the good deeds of God to the next generation. But the next generation always has the opportunity to either hear and respond in faith to what they're hearing about who God is, or they can hear and reject the words of the the previous generation and say, we're not going to serve the Lord. We're not going to honor him as God. And so it seems, because it would, again, using imagination here, it doesn't say if Joshua and his generation were training up the next generation in, in the things of the Lord, it just says that this following generation forgot uh, the, the things of God. They forgot the Lord. And so the book of Judges is characterized by several generations, <clears throat> excuse me, several generations of Israelites who did not remember God. And it says several times throughout the book, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. And that's, that's the, the description of the people of God in the book of Judges. In Joshua, we see a people who are walking by faith, who are obedient to him, who are seeking him. 
in Judges, we see a, a people who have forgotten him, who have neglected the, the Lord and his commandments, and who have no, uh, no authority over them, which they are willing to submit to, but rather they are their own authority. And so we, we trace through the book of Judges the different individuals that God raises up uh, as judges because what would happen in this book is over and over again the Israelites it says that they would forsake God they would worship the other gods that were in the land and they would practice the things of the other unbelievers in the land and so God would want to bring them to repentance so he would punish them he would discipline them and then eventually the Israelites as they're living under the oppression of some foreign ruler, they would cry out to God in repentance, acknowledging their uh, their mistake, and then God would take pity on them, and he would raise up a judge or a savior for them who would then typically be a military leader who would come in and either individually or with a group of people with an army, he would overthrow whatever foreign nation was oppressing the people of Israel. And this happens over a period, there's something like seven cycles, but there's about 13 different judges, give or take, uh, that the Lord raises up to deliver his people Israel over a period of several hundred years. And so this is this is a, a long and dark season in uh, in the history of Israel, they a lot of commentators will call this the Dark Ages of of Israel, and you read through the book and you understand why. Like it just seems it's one event after another that's that's negative, uh, where the Israelites are forgetting the Lord, neglecting their their call to to follow Him and seek Him, and neglecting the law, and as that takes place repeatedly, God continues to punish them. And then he, in his kindness and his mercy, hears their cry and gives them relief uh, as he raises up a judge. And the, the judges that he chooses to raise up are a very interesting batch. Uh, we don't have time to, to go through all of them, but you read the story of some of these judges, and it's not like, again, that they're just these great upright people. In a lot of ways, it seems like the further along you go in the book of Judges, that the worse they are in their character and in their morals. And yet God uses these, these individuals in order to bring deliverance to his people. And so just a couple of them that I just want to highlight quickly uh, is, I mean, we, we have the story of Gideon, and Gideon is very well known. Gideon and his 300 men, and in faith, Gideon is willing to, uh, to go out into this battle with only 300 men, and he trusts that God is going to give them victory, and that's to Gideon's credit. But when God first shows up to Gideon, uh, Gideon is is desperate. He's trying to hide food for his family because they're being oppressed by the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord approaches Gideon, 
And Gideon's response is basically, listen, God is not for us. Uh, Why do you act like God even cares about us? I heard about some of these stories from past generations, from our forefathers of God's faithfulness, but where is God now? Because our lives are miserable. We're living under the oppression of the Midianites, and I'm here trying to hide food for my family just so we can survive another season. And it is not a response of faith by any means, but it's one that's, that seems to be filled with doubt and unbelief. Uh, and and that the Lord is patient with Gideon, and he says, Gideon, I'm going to be with you. I'm calling you to this. I'm going to be with you. And Gideon's like, you should go find somebody else because I'm just not the right guy. Uh, but God doesn't usually take that suggestion uh, very seriously when we give that to him. And so he says, no, Gideon, you're going to be the one that's going to be the next judge. He doesn't say it in those terms, but he raises up Gideon, uh, and Gideon has this incredible victory by the, by the power of God with his 300 men over the whole Midianite army. It's fascinating to read. And then at the end of that story, uh, we see this intriguing account in Judges chapter 8, where Gideon, after the victory, he's chasing down the leaders, two of the, the leaders of the Midianites, uh, and he's wanting to, to hunt them down and kill them. And we find out later it's because of revenge. He, they had killed some of his, it seems, some of his brothers, his own family members in the past. And so he seeks them out for revenge. But at the end of Gideon's life, uh, end of his story, it records that Gideon made some kind of item. It calls it an ephod. We don't know if that's a, a garment, a priestly garment, or if there was some actual object, like a statue that, that he had erected. But he makes some kind of item that the Israelites then begin to worship. Uh, and they stumble. Right after Gideon had delivered them from their, uh, by, by God's hand, he had delivered them from the Midianites. And yet, uh, he ends up leading them into false worship again. Not only that, he takes many concubines and he basically acts like a king, even though he doesn't have the title of king or take the title of king. He acts as if he's a king uh, and has many concubines, has many children. Uh, and yet this is the guy that God r- chose to use as a judge. And you go further along in the story of judges, uh, another judge that is not talked about a whole lot is uh, Jephthah. And Jephthah is is another unique case, but just a surprising person that God would use to bring deliverance to the Israelites. One of the things Jephthah does is when he's about to have this major battle uh, and he really believes that God has called him to be the one to lead this, this army and it's clear that God is, the Spirit of God comes upon him. And Jephthah makes a promise to God saying, if you give me victory, then the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me after this battle, I will offer to you as a burnt offering. And uh, and we think, you know, that why would, what would incline him to even 
think to offer that to God and to barter with God in that way. And I believe that it's because this is a description of the time of the judges, that the people of God, their, their worship was so confused. And it was confused because they had adopted the world around them. Uh, they had adopted the, the practices in the world around them thinking, well, their success is measured in this way, then surely our God would also measure success or he would value the same things that everybody in the world around me is valuing. So in a pagan uh, society, all the other false gods, they valued any kinds of sacrifices. Depending on the god, they would want certain sacrifices that they would see as, uh, as legitimate and appropriate from their worshipers in order to attain the god's favor. And among those would be child sacrifices, that people would sacrifice their, their children in order to try to appease the god or gods that they worshipped. And so this was going on around the people of Israel. And as the Israelites see that happening, they begin to adopt those same ideas and incorporate it into their worship of the one true God. And they begin to think that this is my perspective. I think that Jephthah here has bought the idea that God is somehow pleased with these kinds of sacrifices, even if it's a human sacrifice. And he, he gets that idea from the culture, the world around him, the unbelieving world around him. And it's a huge caution uh, in, in my heart as we read the story of Jephthah. What's going to end up happening is that his daughter is going to come out to greet him after he has victory. And it's debated whether he literally sacrifices his daughter or not, or if it's just figurative and it's rather she's committed to singleness so then his family name is sacrificed because he never has any male offspring from his daughter um and, and so so yeah it, it, is his line being extinguished is that the sacrifice or is, does he literally sacrifice her and i believe that he he literally does but either way uh i think that that the reason why this is even an option for jephthah is because he's he's been taken up with the practices of the people around him who are unbelievers. And so then we we pause and consider in our current state, what does that look like? What are the dangers for the, for the church, for the Christians today? And being quick to make compromises or to even think that God is pleased with certain activity because this is clearly what pleases uh so many other people that we see in the world or elites or powerful people in the world, if this is what pleases them, then surely this must be a good thing that God himself would be pleased with. And so we begin to make much out of numbers. The more people that are involved, the better. Uh, the, the more people that are in the church, uh, in the church building is always the better, that, that we begin to adopt an idea that growth uh, in numbers is the most important thing. But we can grow wide and large in surface area, but never grow deep. And it would seem that Jesus is very concerned with the state of our hearts, not just growing disciples for the sake of having more followers, but 
He says things and does things that drives people away from him if they're not sincere in their faith. Uh, he tells them in John chapter 6 that if they're not willing to depend on him absolutely for life, uh, then, then they can't follow him. And so many of the crowds leave him at that point. And his disciples, they choose to stay. They say, well, we have nowhere else to go. You, you alone have the words of eternal life. And so while it's easy for us to begin to wonder, you know, maybe, maybe numbers are, are really important and we need to just focus on growing the church, growing our parachurch ministry, growing whatever it might be numerically, uh, thinking that's what God is, is going to be most pleased with. And, and I think that's a, a parallel to the danger that Jephthah and the people in Judges faced is that they looked at the world around them and saw how they measured success, how they found God's favor, uh, and then they brought that into their own worship of the one true God, and it was just false because God said, this is not this is not how I've called you to worship me. But rather it's, as Jesus tells the woman at the well, it's to be in spirit and in truth. That's true worship. And so let us just be cautious uh, in, in these things uh, that we would just take to heart. Okay, Lord, are there things in my life, just individually, or even just we as a church, uh, what are the, the dangers? What are the, the pits that we are prone to fall into in the name of uh, assuming that this is what would please you, what would be uh, honoring to you, but we're taking our cues from the world rather than from your word. We're taking our cues of who you are and what you have called us to from what everyone else is doing around us rather than what the Lord Jesus has done already before us and is now doing in us. So, so just letting Christ be the one who determines our activity rather than uh, looking around to figure out what should my activity be? And so then the last judge that I'll just touch on briefly, but is undoubtedly the most popular judge, is Samson. Uh, and again, this is one of these cool stories where this guy, you know, all the coloring, coloring books and coloring pages in Sunday school, you know, he has these huge muscles and long hair, and he does incredible feats with his great strength, like killing lions with his bare hands. Uh, and killing lots of enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. He does all these things. But it's very clear in the story of, of Samson that he's he's a very selfish man, uh, and he is a, one of the themes we see in his life is that he's driven by what he sees. Uh, he's self-seeking. He does whatever is right in his own eyes. As Judges talks about the people of Judges at that time, Samson says to his parents when he sees one woman, he says, I see her and she pleases me. Get her for me as a wife. So it's based on what he sees. At the end of his life, when he's captured, it says that the Philistines, when they punish him, the first thing they do is they remove his eyes. And I think that's that's literally what happens, but that, that's the imagery of, of the Lord removing that which has driven Samson for his whole life is self. He's removing his eyes. Uh, that that Samson has consistently been driven according to his own 
desires. And so if, if going into a certain conflict is going to potentially satisfy his own revenge, he's willing to do it. But he's unwilling to go and fight the Philistines, whom God has raised him up to fight. Samson's unwilling to go and fight the Philistines for God's sake, uh, for, because it's what the Lord's called him to do. He's always willing to fight them for self-preservation or for his own revenge and for his own justice. And so we see Samson as this man who does whatever is right in his own eyes, and he's uh, very unkind towards women. The way that he treats them is continually seems to be just objectified, uh, and and it's just a really sad story to see in Judges. And yet this is the man that God raises up to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And, and you look at these, just the three examples I gave, Gideon, and Jephthah and Samson, and there's there's a number of others in the book of Judges, and consistently they're all sad stories. Uh, not not all of them. Othniel, the first judge, is reputable, uh, and then the others, it just kind of depends on our interpretation of certain aspects of their lives. But they're living in a time when people do whatever is right in their own eyes. And it's, it's hard to read. It's hard to teach through and to, to think through of like, God, why, why these people? You know, why these men to be the judges? Uh, you know, surely there would, there would have been better options maybe. Maybe people were a little bit more godly. But what always blows me away when I think about the judges is how the book of Hebrews, the, the writer to, to the Hebrews uh, speaks of them. And... In Hebrews chapter 11, there's this fascinating account of recalling the, the men and women of old in the Old Testament who express faith in God and live their lives accordingly. And there's this list at the end of Hebrews 11, and then one specific phrase I want to really look at. And he says in verse, th- I'll just pick up in Hebrews eleven thirty-seven, talking about uh, these people that had gone before them. Well, first in 32, He says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, all guys we just talked about, of David and Samuel and the prophets. He goes on. He says in verse 37, They were stoned. They were sawn in two. they They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And so he's talked about from Abraham all the way through the prophets up to this point in the list, and he gives some of those other things they endured there. And then in verse 38, this, this puzzling statement to me, he says, Men of whom the world was not worthy. Men of whom the world was not worthy. And you think of the things that Jephthah did, and Scripture describes Jephthah in the New Testament as a man of whom the world was not worthy. It describes Gideon, who led the Israelites into false worship, as a man of whom the world was not worthy. It describes Samson, who belittled women, uh, a man who sought his own revenge, who uh, spurned the calling of God to be a Nazarite. 
and it describes Samson as a man of whom the world was not worthy. And that's just hard to swallow. Like, how how does that work, God? You know, uh, of this idea that these individuals, and we can think in, in our own lives, people that we maybe we, we know, stories we've heard in the past of other other professing believers and mistakes that have been made and sins that have taken place. Uh, and here, these men in particular are mentioned as being and described as being men of whom the world was not worthy. I mean, you think, it, if if these men were held to account uh, today in a courtroom for some of the things that they did, they would be deemed very guilty. Like, what is it that determines them to now be considered men of high renown, of whom the world is not worthy? And I believe the answer has is earlier in the chapter, in the very beginning of chapter 11 in Hebrews. And it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the men of old gained approval. And then he begins talking about all these men and women of faith, Abraham, Sarah, and so many after them. By it, the men of old gained approval. How is it that Samson gains approval before God? It was not because of all of the good things that he did. How is it that Gideon gains approval and Jephthah? How is it that I, John, gained the Lord's approval? It is not by all of the good things that I can do. But rather it says, by faith. By believing in something or someone. Now what is it that qualifies these men for such, for being held in such high regard? And it's because of something else, of someone else. It's faith. And it says in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We just have snippets of these men in the book of Judges, and uh, God has chosen to record some of the very poor choices that they made. Uh, And we know that's intentional, that he has chosen every story for a purpose. And John explains that the stories that are included in the Gospel of John are recorded so that by hearing these stories, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The stories that are recorded in the book of Judges of these men, not just the success stories like we see in Joshua, but the failures that we see uh, as we see examples of those that do whatever is right in their own eyes. Uh, And yet, there's some presence of faith to some degree, at some point or points in their life. uh, It might not be a consistent faith, but somewhere along the way, 
they believe. They believe and they come to God believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so, you know, the Israelites in the beginning of Judges, they forgot the Lord. And God had kept so many promises to Israel. He had kept the promise of the land. Uh, He has made so many promises to us as his church, as his people. And and there's a, a calling, an invitation to us to remember the Lord, to remember his promises, uh, but more specifically to remember him. And just having that, that question in our minds of what is it uh, that, that you are forgetting to remember in your present circumstance? You know, if you find yourself despairing, what is it that you're forgetting to remember? And we we can look at our lives and we can see our failures. If uh, if you're someone that tends to be very introspective, like myself, and we can see our failures, and and we can grow discouraged with those, uh, and knowing that those are coming from ourselves. That's who we are. Like, we, we make mistakes. We sin. Uh, and then I look at men like Samson and Jephthah, and the description that the writer of Hebrews gives them is those who, of whom the world is not worthy. And it causes me to remember something that I so easily forget. And it's just the simplicity of the gospel that we come to God by faith in Christ. And when I live in discouragement because of my own failures, it's because I've forgotten to remember something. It's because I've forgotten to remember that my life doesn't come from my success, but life comes from Christ. And as you walk through the season that the Lord has you in, whether it's a season of Joshua or the season of Judges, uh, where you see incredible testimonies of God's faithfulness all around you. You see him doing clear and good work in your life and the lives of those around you. Or maybe it's a season that's just difficult and discouraging, uh, and you realize uh, specific areas that you've just been self-seeking, uh, or, or you see the hurt in other people's lives that is caused so often uh, by, by selfishness or just the, the reality of living in a broken world. And as we walk through these different seasons of life, wanting to take pause and asking the Lord to show us, what am I forgetting to remember? And ultimately what he wants us to remember is himself. That we would come to him and believe in him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our life. Not putting our hope in ourselves, in our successes, not determining what success even looks like based on the world around us, but rather letting God be the determiner of what success is, letting God be 
the giver, the enabler in that calling that he puts on us and realizing that that is why he has given us himself for the fulfillment of that calling. And so my prayer for us now is just that we would not forget to remember uh, and that we would simply remember this precious and simple truth that we simply come to the Lord believing, believing on him as God and knowing that in him alone, in Christ alone, do we have life and have it abundantly. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the His Hill Podcast. You've been listening to our host, Kelly Doherty, and our principal here at the Hill, John Forrest. We hope you enjoyed hearing from John this week and that his words were an encouragement to you. If you would like to get in touch with Kelly or John, you can contact them via email. Kelly can be reached at kelly at hishill.org and John can be reached at john at hishill.org. Thanks again for tuning in with us today. Remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. I'm Lizzie and we'll see you next week.